This is the re-release of my conversation with clinical psychologist, author and sex therapist, Dr. Sandra Pertot, about her life and work that aired in March. The podcast has been edited by Dr. Pertot, following concerns being raised about its content by other professionals working in the field of gender dysphoria, and is restored with this disclaimer, that the views expressed are solely those of Dr. Pertot, arising from her own professional practice and experience, which represent one view in what is a rapidly changing field. The views expressed should not be taken as professional advice or supervision on the topic of gender dysphoria. Psychologists working with gender dysphoria are strongly urged to educate themselves in all aspects of assessment and treatment. We expect there to be future podcasts and articles in the APS Insight that continue to explore gender dysphoria from a variety of perspectives. We support open and ongoing discussion and education so that as professionals, we are equipped with the knowledge and skills to care for our proudly diverse Australian community. Dr. Pertot has supplied additional background material that gives context to her conversation and links to studies that have informed her views. We encourage you to consider these via the links on the Clinically Thinking Facebook page. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Clinically Thinking. I'm Dr. Lisa Chandler. This is a podcast by clinical psychologists for clinical psychologists. It will introduce you to experts in a wide range of fields relevant to the practice of clinical psychology. And I hope you'll find it engaging and informative. I first learned about Dr. Sandra Pettock whilst reading her letter on gender dysphoria complexity in a recent APS Insight magazine. In her letter to the editor, she makes an argument for the importance of really clear assessment processes for clinicians working in this area. And when I was reading her letter, I thought, I want to interview this woman. I was impressed by her knowledge and the questions she posed. Dr. Pertop became a sex therapist by accident when she undertook her postgraduate training in clinical psychology at the University of New South Wales in 1972. Sex therapy was a very new discipline and it was included in the clinical training program. It's an understatement that initially the sex therapy training was confronting, but then became her area of interest clinically. And since then, Dr. Pertot has worked in a variety of clinical settings, including community health centres and private practice. And she has always maintained a broad clinical caseload across the range of mental health issues. Her particular area of clinical interest has been working with individuals and couples who are experiencing difficulty in their sexual relationships, anorgasmia, rapid or delayed ejaculation, erectile dysfunction, and particularly libido concerns. But she also works with individuals with distress related to diverse gender and sexualities and individuals presenting with paraphilic disorders. In the last few years, she's experienced an increasing presentation of young people stating that they have gender dysphoria. Dr. Pertop began writing in early 1980s with a fortnightly column on mental health issues in the local paper, and she has since had many articles published in various popular magazines. 
Her pragmatic approach to sexuality is demonstrated by the title of her books, A Common Sense Guide to Sex, Perfectly Normal, Living and Loving with Low Libido, and When Your Sex Desires Don't Match, Discover Your Libido Types to Create a Mutually Satisfying Sex Life. Good morning, Dr. Pertot, and welcome to Clinically Thinking. Uh, I'm, I loved your bio, and I'm curious to know more about it, uh, more about your comment in your bio that your initial training in sex therapy was confronting. Yeah. Can you, can you tell us about, tell listeners about that? Well, we, you've got to go back to 1972, which is before most of you were born. And at that point, um, there was still a lot of anxiety around sex, um, a lot of misinformation, the old-fashioned traditional view about sex. Um, and I actually wasn't that interested in, in looking at sex therapy, but at that point I had met my boyfriend, who's now my husband, and I chose the master's that was closest to home simply so that I could be next to him, near him. Oh, yes. And, um, yeah, it was very confronting. I mean, I was an innocent sort of naive country girl in some ways, and Ron Farmer walked in through a couple of photographs of hardcore porn, and this is 1972. Wow. And I was almost catatonic, you know, like these <laughs> I'd never seen anything like this before. Yeah. And his comment was disgust. There were three women and, and six males. Um, and I remember the first few months, I almost felt like I was in catatonic shock. Um, but over time, uh, really got to understand how much culture shapes uh, what we think and believe about sex as well as all other things. And I almost became like an evangelist for this new way of thinking about sex, that uh, you know people have the right to pleasure. Women do have the right to uh, initiate sex. I would see in the 70s, I saw people who didn't even know that the women who didn't know that the penis got erect, men who didn't know where to put the penis when they got together. So, you know, it was from that sort of awakening, I guess. And people said to me when I went back to Newcastle, you're very changed. <laughs> so how did a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed clinical student find her, you know, her clinical home in sex therapy? Well, it was because of that, um, Ron Farmer introduced sex therapy into Australia and we were, I think, the second group to get any sex therapy in the terms of the new Masters and Johnson approach. And so we, uh, one of our uh, students was Bettina Arndt, who has been very out there. Oh, yeah. So she's, she first went out and, and started Forum and a few other things. And I got, went back to Newcastle, uh, which is where my boyfriend was, and um, people knew that I was doing sex therapy, had done sex therapy, so I was asked more and more to, to see clients in that area. So I just, as I was almost evangelical in trying to help people know more about sex and have better sex lives. Um, absolutely, especially if you, yeah, if you can see that women have a right to, you know, a good time in sex and, and you see so much ignorance around uh, where to put various things <laughs> for, for, as a basic example. That's right. The ignorance was stunning. Um, but at the same time, what I learnt was that you have to be very careful about people's cultural values. So one of the early women uh, clients that I had, I was working in a medical centre at that stage while I was doing a PhD, um, she'd gone to a GP because she was menopausal and painful intercourse. He gave her a script of uh, oestrogen. And when I started talking about sexual pleasure, she said, I don't want to know anything about that stuff. I just want to be able to have sex with my husband every Friday night without pain like I have since we were married. So her values around sex were very different to what I was trying to promote. And that was a real eye-opener for me. I have to be very careful about assuming what people want, what their values are, um, 
and, and values change. What we believe today is going to be considered nuts in a, you know, five, 50 years' time. Yes, and you can only exist in the culture in which you exist, can't you? And, and the thinking that you have can only be the thinking of the day. So you can't step outside one's own culture, really. Can we? Where can we? You can't see outside it. No, but I think we need to clinical psychologists. It bothers me that sex therapists and clinical psychologists do still stay embedded in the culture that they're living in and they don't stand back and think, how might this look in 50 years' time when I'm treating a client in this way? And we can see the shift from cognitive behaviour therapy to ACT to. So all I, it bothers me that clin psychs aren't always aware that their own values are, are leaking into the session. And also what yeah. I find is that uh, clin psychs tend to have a particular favourite modality or theoretical approach through which they view practically every case, that lens that they, they inter interpret the client's um, presentation. And that bothers me, that um, I was trained in the N equals one approach, which is every person's their own experiment. You don't, and this is where it's relevant to the gender issue. You don't make assumptions up front that you know what's going on with this client and you know what's best for them. We'll come back to that because it's very relevant. You've been a sex therapist for 30 years, and this Actually, almost, 50, almost, almost 54 over 30 years well that gives you a unique perspective to you know to both observe change participate in it doesn't yes, it yes it does and you just decided to share some ideas about your observations about sex therapy and particularly in, in this context about the gender diversity and can you share with us your some of your observations about how that's changed over the last 30 yeah. or so years one of, again, going back to the idea that people don't notice their own values, um, you know, when I first started with sex therapy, sex was about duty, um, it was about having babies, um, and it wasn't necessarily about pleasure. Um, it was about, you know, fulfilling your marital contract in a sense. And then it changed from, you know, it should be about love to Masters and Johnson said it's got to be about behaviours. If you do the right behaviours, you will have a great sex life. So all of, his, all of their work focused on improving erections, lasting longer, um, and that sort of entered that new era where we, we kind of were almost evangelical about teaching people how to do good sex. Yeah. And then we realised that wasn't enough. Um, and so then we, walked, we moved into the passion stage. There needs to be some passion, uh, David Schnark's work. And that's been superseded by now it's got to be highly erotic, which is a, a Perel's work, that it's about eroticism. And we've got uh, another uh, client patch who says, good sex should be transcendent and we shouldn't let our clients settle for less. Wow. That's it's a real trajectory, yeah. isn't it? And so if you read, I'm actually writing a manual for clinicians on working with couples with different sexual expectations, wants and needs. And the first chapter is on looking at the way that sex therapists are embedded in a culture which they um, are influenced by, but then their approach reflexively influences the culture. So we get books written by, you know, how to drive your man wild in bed. You know, all of these books, are a very respected therapist uh, Sandra Lieblins wrote a book called Getting the Sex You Want. So the impression is that there, if you want a certain sex life, you should be able to get it. It's just your lack of will or lack of knowledge. And what they're missing is the idea that people have different sexual abilities. Now, we know, for example, with rapid ejaculation, some guys have a biological set point that unless they use medication to delay ejaculation, they'll always come quickly. So, so there's this really, each generation gets stuck in their own values and, and notion where for me, as you say, having gone through all that, I don't believe any of it. I think, you know, we really have to look at 
this client front, sitting in front of me, what do I need to, to understand about this client and how do I help them, which might be very different to what I do with somebody else. Very interesting. And I was, I was reading one of your books about sexual different libidos. Yeah. yeah. And that's it's a, little bit, a little bit older now, but certainly talks about that notion that N equals one, everyone's got a different libido. Um, yeah. And we need to treat people where they are, you know, the N equals one, what is this person able to do? What, what do they need? What do they want? That's, and a lot of acceptance mm. around that. And what's their, what's their context? I mean, if you've got two people working part-time with three kids, are they really going to worry about transcendent sex? They might do, um, but the chances are that, you know, their, their actual context might alter what they're actually able to do. Um, postnatal women, which is what I did my thesis in, um, you know, if women are too tired for the first couple of years, what can we expect sexually? So it's, it's really um, what I see myself trying to do now is trying to help people uh, respect their own sexual wants and needs and think about what they're, you know, try and explore what their partner wants and see whether there's a middle ground. Now, one of the issues with mismatched libidos, which I term as, it's not about frequency, it's got nothing to do with frequency. It's about differences in sexual wants and needs. Uh, so you can have people with the same level of libido, but if they want different things, one partner will eventually drop out because that part person's not getting their needs met. So, you know, so my task is, is very much to help couples see where there's a middle ground. And again, sometimes there isn't. I remember seeing a couple years ago where one wanted a baby and one didn't want a baby. You yeah. can't have half a baby. <laughs> no, you cannot. So, so I think, again, all the books that I read promise, like Schnark says, my approach will help you get it right. It may not. There may not be a good enough middle ground. And, and so my job is to be respectful in pointing at, in, in looking at that but also helping the couple look at where sex fits in their relationship. Sex therapists go on about it as if it's the most important thing. It's not. For other people, respect, kindness, gentleness. So even if they're not having a good sex life, they can still see their relationship as very, very satisfying. And there's some research from, from the Australian um, survey on, on sexual attitudes and behaviours in Australia, which showed that the people might want more, but the majority of people actually felt quite good about their sex lives. I'm promising our listeners a further podcast dedicated entirely to sex therapy. But if we may change our focus ever so slightly here to the yeah. shift in the way we think about gender and gender diversity and uh, the current zeitgeist that we have now, and I'd be interested in your perspective around the shift in the, that thinking over the last little while. What's, what's your perspective? Well, when I did my sex therapy training in the 70s, we were still fighting the battle for gay rights. Transgender people were just on the periphery of that because, you know, when I when I first did uh, my training, there was uh, straight people and gay people. We had to fight for the rights of gay people. Then we realised there were bisexual people. So really the, the, the gender identity didn't become an issue um, culturally until maybe 20 years ago or in the 90s. Prior to that, we knew about people who felt they were trapped in the wrong body. And I saw um, people who felt that they were trapped in the wrong body, but they had to go through a very strict, tough protocol before they could get access to either the, the drugs or the surgery. Um, and so, you know, even when I came up to the country, I saw uh, people who were trans, but they were generally older in the early years of being here, which I moved here in 2007. Um, and so I saw, for example, an, a guy who's now just undergoing surgical reassignment and he's in his 70s. Mm. He's wanted it all his life. Um, and, you know, I've, I had a trans male who had always 
presented herself as butch, but she said, I've always felt I was male and she wanted her breast removed, but she was fine. So, so that was the early sort of uh, confirmation of the old view. And then, uh, you know, in 2014, I started seeing more young people and then, and I was generally very uh, affirming of them. And then in 2018, I saw two natal females who were 18 that shifted everything for me. But somewhere along the line, and I have not tracked it down, somewhere along the line, um, the, the, the idea of transgender uh, as being a disorder uh, or, or having gender dysphoria as a disorder was, was cast aside. And if you go to DSM-5, they've, they've removed that label. It's gender dysphoria, full stop. Mm -hmm. So prior to that, um, and, and with DSM-5, they did something quite unusual. They asked clinicians for their input or they asked people for their input. And I'm wondering whether... People with lived experience are going to stop you. People with lived experience or yes. clinicians or both? Just anybody. Right. Just people. people. People to have their, their view. Um, so I thought, looking back, I think there must have been a movement, just like there was a gay activist group, there must have been a movement somewhere way even before 2000. 12, I think, when DSM came out. But I knew nothing about it um, until 2018. I was working in a country practice, uh, general practice, mostly relationships, uh, mismatched libidos, a lot of anxiety, depression. So I wasn't keeping up with the gender stuff until um, 2018 when it kind of tilted and I thought, these two women, they're both 18, so they were over the age of consent, but there's something not right about what they're telling me. It doesn't fit. Um, and so, the, and, and I've thought about it, and, and my concern is that I'm basing it on my subjective feelings. Yes, yes. You know, I'm not basing it on research, which is a real worry. Although it's a wealth of clinical experience, that clinical hunch or that feeling, uh, yeah. you know, is in deeply embedded in a, a range of years and years of clinical experience and reading and research and yeah. so forth. So it has some su substance. It has. And so what I was seeing with these two uh, 18-year-olds um, was that, first of all, they used all the language, you know, all the, the I'm non-binary, I'm this, and they, some not pansexual, a whole lot of different words, um, and, they, and they were both very recent. So they're 18 and yeah. both said, I've only realised I'm trans in the last six months or so, and I realised it after reading about it on the internet. So that in itself doesn't knock them out, but what, that, what it was missing was the actual distress that um, okay. I saw in other people. So one of my young trans clients, who's now, uh, he's now 20, um, I saw him in 2014, but he, he was so distressed by his body that he couldn't shower with the light on. You know, he was very, he, he had that genuine distress of, I feel like I, I'm a girl, uh, I'm a boy. So that's that interesting. So um, I ask a question there. Um, so you, you, if someone who has genuine gender dysphoria, you'd expect some dysphoria not just a social perception that I feel like I'm in the wrong body but that, uh, that actual disgust or space mm. for one's own body and its appearance in all kinds of ways and that would be would that and would that be the case also that that should that sort of dysphoria would be generally present for a long time not well, just that, months? This, this is the argument you see that um they, we, we started to notice this increase in, uh, across the world, it was happening from about 2012, um, that there was a sudden increase in the term natal females who are adolescent presenting, saying that they had uh, gender dysphoria and that they uh, wanted to sh 
eventually become a male. There wasn't the same shift in males. It really, and there's an, a documentary called Trans Train, which was the documentary that I viewed in 2019 that made me think, hang on a minute, what I'm seeing, other people are seeing. Yeah, yes. so I wasn't influenced by other people's ideas. It was me thinking, well, it must be me, you know, because um, I spoke to a psychiatrist, I spoke to someone else who works in the gender area, and they both said, oh, no, no, if they say they're trans, they're trans, and it's a pretty safe thing to do to support them. That she's, they're both 18. If they want uh, cross-sex hormones, they should have them. So, so that sort of threw me until I saw this trans train document in, um, in 2019. And then I started looking and I found this, there's a woman called Lickman, I can't think of her first name, who wrote an article on rapid onset gender dysphoria, which blew the whole thing up. Um, she tell, was, us about, tell us about rapid onset gender dysphoria. Well, basically, um, traditionally um, with gender dysphoria, it, it's meant to have been a persistent, consistent feeling and, and desire for a very long time. Yes. There's no definite time frame. But it's interesting that in DSM-5, they've now reduced the period of dysphoria to six months. So if you're dysphoric for six months or more, um, then, you know, you are likely to be trans. So, but there's, the thing is, it gets very complicated. This is why even talking about it's frustrating because you'll get people who say they're trans who don't want anything other than to live socially. Yes. Um, you get people who, who don't express a lot of dysphoria about their bodies. It's just that, well, you know, I'm not real happy with them, um, but I don't need to change it. So, so there's so many permutations out there. This yeah. is where you get into trouble if you say the wrong thing because, oh, yes, but that, it's not like that for everybody can come back at you. I see. Um, so it's um, from there I ended up finding some people that are kind of around the world sharing similar concerns. But the, the, uh, the, the reaction that people get if they don't adopt the uh, if they say they're trans they're trans can be very vitriolic and mind you people on the other side can be as well you know people who I mean there are some people who deny transgender as, as a as an option black and white it doesn't exist it's, it's always to do with something else and I'm definitely in the middle I have sat with clients where I and this is why it bothers me because I know it's me my subjective experience but I sit with some clients I, I just know from my perspective, I have no no lack of confidence in supporting their desire to transition. And there are some that you would have some concerns about. So it seems that there's, there's quite some two militant areas. There's a very militant group of uh, uh, trans activists, if you like, and there was also an equally militant, perhaps, group that would... What, what, what would the group say? That, uh... well, yeah, there's a lot of... Um, different theories out there. There's one group that um, is more what you might call the radical feminists, and they see that um, that, that helping someone change their, their gender identity is a form of uh, uh, conversion therapy for gay people. Their view is that trans people are actually gay, but that for some reason that they can't, um, they can't acknowledge that. And one view is that from a religious point of view, homosexuality is not accepted. So if I become the opposite sex, then I can have sex with my my you know same sex partner. If, okay. if so, that's one of them. Uh, there are others which are about a flight. This current group are about a flight from being female. Um, that the females are so undervalued yeah. that there's this desire to become male. That that doesn't. It's the fact that it's only happening in, with women that doesn't really resonate with me, um, because I think if we come up with any uh, theory about gender dysphoria and, and transgender it has to account for a lot of cases so 
I, I don't think that either of those really um, account for the majority of cases that I'm seeing. I don't, I haven't seen anybody that I felt was fleeing from femininity. Um, my view is it's, it is very much socially um, influenced. So it seems that the, considering the social context in which uh, in individually anybody is functioning is as essential to considering whether that person is... I know, it's hard, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, is, um, yeah, it is very hard to put into words, but each individual social context is essential is what you're saying in determining, help, helping them work out What's right for them? What's right for them? That, that seems to be the language, and I and I I must say I do struggle a bit with the language, and I'm, that's why I'm hesitating because I'm trying to think through as I go. But at the n equals one, and the, and the, is and mm. the client in front of you, and then they're bringing to you some some dysphoria. You'd want to be thinking about the social context in an individual way, but in a broader concept, it also seems to me that the social context, uh, dare I say, internet and social media and so forth, is also contributing. Yes. to the you know the way people are feeling about themselves and and their bodies do you think that's absolutely and and i mean people it amazes me that people say it's insulting to say that it's socially influenced um, and one of the aims of the trans activists which i think is a valid title is that they want all gatekeepers to be um, shut down um, if someone says they're trans they should get automatic access to hormonal therapy as a, as a first thing so so what I'm what I started seeing and again you know me working in isolation in a little country town was um, that the, the most the people coming to see me the young natal females were generally socially isolated and their community was generally on the internet now what we, we don't disagree that social context impacts on eating disorders or uh, self deliberate self-harm um, but for some reason suggesting that someone who's trans may be actually more influenced by social uh, forces than inner dys dysphoria uh, is almost like you're you know you're blaspheming but the young people I see pretty much all of the ones that I've had concerns about um, have been recent onset um, not a lot of emotional expression in our in our assessment um, and often socially isolated, struggled to have friends. So, so they, were, they were the markers that I started noticing were frequent with those people. And so I guess we're very much in the mix of what this all means and, you know, asking the questions about this parent social, the social influence around uh, this group of people that you and others have noticed have come more, more frequently now for, you know, gender assignment or tra social transitioning. There are different opinions as to why that is and yes, yeah. only, only in the future will we know. Um, I'm, I was reading an article with uh, Robert D'Angelo. Is that to... Oh, yes, yes. Please I'll ask his forgiveness for mispronouncing his name. <laughs> but I was particularly interested in, in one of the final sentences in his one of his articles and he says, um, uh, does the current wave of gender dysphoria and young people constitute a protest that the way our culture regulates gender is untenable? Are they feeling increasingly suffocated by the limiting ways in which it is possible to live in a gendered world? Is their dysphoria an expression of a more profound sense of alienation and, dis dis and despair? And it seemed interesting that um, some of the debate around gender diversity was pot potentially further constraining us to particular genders rather than living in a living in a world where you 
we're not so constrained by our gender. Yeah, that's right. It's more constraining. It is in a way. And that, that's one of the things that bothers me. I mean, I when we're working in the 70s and 80s with gay people, um, one of the things that I noticed, which I found quite intriguing, was that women were much more fluid. They would have a relationship with uh, a male and then they'd have a relationship with a female. And so from that, I, I had a greater understanding that, you know, your sexual orientation can be quite fluid. Now, with gender, this whole gender debate, the, the main thing that worries me is that we are blocking people into one decision that they have to stay with. And so although I think there's a lot of research on how best to talk to young people about, I usually talk about it as uh, this is an unfolding story, let's see where it goes. And I also talk about it, things may change over time. But what's happening at the moment is that people, if they start to identify as trans, then they don't know how to come back from that. Or if they are curious and aren't sure, and then they decide that they're, you know, they're, they're not trans, that they're the right gender, um, for attached to their, their birth, um, we might be blocking them in as well. You know, we need to be much more um, flexible as therapists and not coming, not leading them down a blind alley. Whatever it is, yeah. we have to give them permission to go in the pathway that's right for them and, and to change direction. And that's not narrow. If that's a broadening perspective, it very much lends itself to that client affirming perspective exactly. in your your letter to insight um, Client affirming rather than gender affirming. Exactly. Because the client affirming is much a much broader path. Very I would never try to talk somebody out of their, their stated beliefs. It's not my job to do that. Um, but it is my job to explore, and particularly when it comes to the long-term side effects. Now, um, you know, I mentioned that I saw two clients in 2018, um, and both of them I saw only for a consult or a, a, a one-off because they were being seen by another psychologist. Um, and so these were the two that I felt, this doesn't feel right. I spoke to my colleagues, no, 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 and both of them end up going on, on to testosterone. Now, both of them have come back to me for, for different reasons. One client who's an exceptionally bright young person and um, very academic, uh, he's been on T now for over two years and he he's, his therapist, he's psych, left the practice so he came to see me. And initially, you know, we, we didn't talk much about his transgender at all. It was mainly that he was depressed and anxious. And he threw in the comment, I thought I would feel better once I was on T. And mm -hmm. so that kind of bubbled away there for a bit and we, we would go to the arguments a little bit. And then it was only, honestly, um, two weeks ago that I had the opportunity, I felt it was okay, to say, have you ever thought about coming off tea? And his reaction stunned me. It's, mm. It was there all in, all complete. Yes, I have thought about it. I looked up somebody who has come off tea. I'm worried about being on any drug forever. I don't want to have my uh, have a hysterectomy. And I might even want a child one day. He still wants to um, identify as male um, and live socially as a male. And that just blew my mind because he was so clear about it. He'd obviously been thinking about it over recent months. So was it the in that in that context, what is your what was your primary concern for him? In raising that question, my primary concern was still that I'm not, you know, I still had the same doubts. He was still socially isolated, you know, start trying to go to TAFE and so on. Um, so I, I mean it's always do no harm and, and it's a real real concern. I don't, this is where we need more research. I think we need more research on how to bring up these challenges without making the client feel that you're attacking them or you don't believe them. And I don't know that we've got that very clearly done at the moment. 
The other client, he's he's more of a worry because he started off with, um, you know, I'm, I'm transgender. This is the person that had all, a lot of the words, wanted to be a, uh, a gender activist. You know, who wants to change gender to become an activist? You normally do the hard work to start with. But since then, his depression's quite profound. He's on medication. But every week I see him almost, he'll come in with, I think I'm OCD was the last one. Another one was, I okay. think I dissociate was another one. Um, and so I think he's looking for, for a label to hang on himself that makes sense of how he feels. Um, and so I, trans would become another, in this I, context. In I think it was one. another thing. And yeah. um, Very interesting. Another one, he wanted to, uh, he, he wanted to know, should he carry, uh, should he be on a medic alert for something else he was on, some other condition? I said, well, I don't know about you need it for that, but maybe if you had a, a, a bracelet that, identified you as trans so if you were in an accident they'd know what medication you're on oh yes and he embraced that and now where's the bracelet so again it's to me I think young people are lost it's in this whole sort of you've all got to be special you've all got to be amazing um and you know what is it that I can be so I, I don't think it's a conscious thought but it's I think social it's the social yeah. Influence. political context in which yeah. we find ourselves. I'm wondering um, about how in some circumstances gender uncertainty, for want of a better word, might resolve once psychopathology is resolved. And I'm, I'm thinking particularly of one of my clients who had um, anorexia, has anorexia and some medical conditions and, and, and in fact a long list of diagnoses that she's brought with her. But um, once her anorexia was resolved, she said to me, well, she said she was non-binary and that surgery wasn't an option um, for various medical reasons. Uh, but then um, some six months after treatment, for her anorexia and she was normal weight and her shape had returned and with it the boobs and the whole you know the whole all the right junk and all the right places so to speak um she announced to me that she was happy to be lesbian um and was non was no longer non-binary and we hadn't had one discussion about that mm. uh, and i was quite gobsmacked and thought what does this mean mm. you know for for therapy what does this mean for this area and i don't it probably means a lot about how anorexia is responsible for quite a few other problems. But I yeah. wonder what your thoughts might be on that. Well, I think this is part of the argument that um, young people like that, like my client, if they're given a supportive environment um, and they work through some of the other um, problems that were challenging them. So with my young man, uh, trans male, he's we've been working on social anxiety and so on. I think it can lead to that shift to say, well, yeah, I don't think I'm trans anymore. I feel like I'm gay. And that's one of the arguments for the radical gay movement that most of these trans people, they, they argue, are in fact gay. Um, so, but can, I, uh, can I stop you there? I'm wondering whether we've lost our way a little bit with um, radical feminism. Um, I'm old enough too to re remember um, the radical feminists of the 70s and 80s. And um, and I feel a little bit like they're a bit quieter these days. And, and in that, I, I don't hear that argument very much and I would be interested to hear it it's funny to, for me to think that knowing who I am but I'm interested in that perspective and interested if you look, if you like a little bit more radical feminism in in this debate what are your thoughts yeah. uh, well there's actually and uh, as I said I'm in contact with people around the world and there's actually a new movement starting for the LGB group that, that uh, to um, be more out there in terms of, of challenging the notion that someone who's trans 
you know, may in fact be gay. So it's it's only that that side of it is only just um, taking off. What bothers me is that that view tends to deny the possibility of being transgender, and I, I don't like I don't like the black and whiteness of it. Look, the therapeutic endeavour is always, or the therapeutic imperative is always to let your client lead you where they want to go, but also to explore sometimes. And you can do it quite gently, you know, like I did with the guy last week. Have you ever considered that you might go off the testosterone? I had the potential to blow everything up. Um, but, you know, having if we're going to challenge them, we have to challenge people, no matter what their issue is, with that curiosity rather than judgment. Mm. Absolutely agree. Client affirming uh, versus gender affirming yes. seems to be more respectful of mm. client in front of us where there's a mm. but it's interesting it makes me brings me to another question and um i noticed in the forum on the insight forum that you post started a, a thread mm. on i was very grateful for that that chris mackey uh responded you might have seen his yes. response and he's he suggested there's a risk and ex, uh, respectful exploration with a client about their interest in gender transitioning as being seen as being reparative or yeah. a, a form of gender identity conversion. What are you? What are your thoughts about that? Well, I think um, there's a couple of things. First of all, some people do take the view that some of what we might call trans activists do take the view that if you if you queried at all, then you are performing conversion therapy. Interestingly enough, the, the, some of the gay people say transgender itself is conversion therapy for gay people. Um, so the issue is to be really careful. But I th look, in no other condition do, are we directed, and this is what's been happening in some health areas around the world, are we directed that you must take a certain line with a client. If we had someone with eating disorders, look, in no other area in clinical practice are we dictated to in terms of how we assess the client or whether we assess the client and what we do with them. What happened with this, you know, I keep using the words trans activists, is that their argument is that um, there should be no gatekeepers. So if anybody wants hormone uh, treatment, they should get it. We don't, if, if we had somebody turn up who was very thin and felt that she was fat or he was fat and wanted uh, appetite suppressants, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't just hand over what they wanted. And this is where the argument about um, disorder comes in. Now, there's a lot of anger about, uh, you know, saying that gender dysphoria is a disorder. But if it's not a disorder, it shouldn't need medical and surgical treatment. By definition, if you require treatment, you're treating a problem. Because the idea is that no, um, gender dysphoria is a natural or gender diverse, it's a natural part of gender diversity. A lot of transgender people don't have gender dysphoria. So it's the dysphoria that's distressing is the clinical issue, not the actual trans presentation. But if they're distressed, that's still normal because that their body doesn't match with their gender. So it's reasonable that they're distressed. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they should get assistance. That's the bit I struggle with. I don't see how you can present wanting treatment, unquestioned treatment, um, without implying that there's a problem. And there are clinicians around the world that, uh, if you look at what's happened in the NHS in Britain with the care yes. of the um, I'm interested in that. Um, I don't see very young people. So, uh, I'm, you know, my, I'm just kind of talking from just what I've learned. Um, the evidence seems to be that the majority of pre-pubertal pre kids will actually desist when they enter puberty. Now, again, what's the percentage around that? You know, I think it's a big number, isn't it? 
Yeah, and more than, according to a lot of the research, 75% of kids who, who take on uh, the characteristics of the other gender will desist by the time they're puberty. And I've spoken, I had a, a client who didn't realise what, what she was saying. She was talking about how she was such a tomboy and she insisted on being called a, a, by a boy's name. And then that changed when she became, uh, when she went through puberty. And this was not related to gender at all. She was telling me her history as a child. Yes. So, so the majority of kids will, will actually desist. What worries me is that I've seen on the on the YouTube some parents, the child's, you know, three, they announce this is the child's new name, uh, they're now a boy, and that that blocks the child in. You know, pre-puberty, we need to be just letting the kids go. In terms of blockers, again, the argument has been that there is no adverse effects and that's been challenged. So there's problems with bone density, uh, brain growth, so this, this narrative that we can just put kids on a hormone that will, that will stop um, puberty, give them time to think about what they want, uh, is being seriously challenged. And one of the issues then comes down to consent, which was the whole Kira Bell um, yes. argument. How can a person of the age of 12 consent to puberty blockers, understanding the long-term possible implications because the pre-existing argument is, well, there aren't any long-term problems. So we don't have to, you know, if they understand that we're going to stop, you know, your development, that's, that's all they need to know. But in fact, the evidence is that it isn't quite that clear. And even for my, the two that I saw that uh, caused me some doubt, I saw them for one session and went through. Uh, but looking back, I didn't emphasise or explore enough in that session uh, about, you know, if you do go into cross-sex hormones and you decide to go off them, you might still find that you are now unable to have children. You know, I, I think we, I don't think that's being done enough to help people really understand the, the implications. And I guess the uh, the Kira Bell decision in the UK is, is likely to have some impact on um, the notion of informed consent in Australia. You know, if you know if you can't, it, it basically the decision was you cannot. It cannot be informed consent for children, and so what that's going to mean going forward in Australia is, I guess, is yet to be seen. But yeah. um, there is still that set. You said that say seventy five percent of kids will children will that will resolve. It's just a developmental, if you like. Yes. Um, but then that leaves twenty five percent. That's right. Who yeah. will go on? Who will continue with gender dysphoria? And perhaps it's from that group mm-hmm. that one might expect on. Yeah, that, um, ongoing uh, distress and perhaps uh, seeking to socially transition or opt for surgical options. And um, so that, again, as someone who doesn't, doesn't really work in this area, um, suggests that you would expect longer-term distress about one's own body in, in order to, for there to be... I, I, I'm kind of struggling with language. That, I know. Yeah, a kind of a, a, real, a real problem, if you like, that needs to be addressed. It, it's challenging because... Um, what the uh, gender identity clinic in uh, the UK says that every child that they put on puberty blockers transitions onto cross-sex hormones and remains convinced that they're in that gender. Um, but the other uh, argument is that once a child starts on puberty blockers, do they feel that they can they can then change their mind? Um, so the issue of consent, even with kids that you might worry um, or you might believe that they yes they're generally experiencing distress it's still a, a, a call to say, yes, they should go on puberty blockers. So the, there's no doubt. As I, I don't have any doubt that there are some kids who, who are trapped in the wrong body, I guess. 
But I, I think this is a minefield that we haven't yet negotiated. Um, and what do you think about, and talking about a minefield, hmm. how do you think clinical psychologists are going generally in this minefield? Well, it's interesting because I got a lot of uh, emails following my Insight letter and uh, certainly some people have said that they've dropped out of working in this area because of the conflict. And, I mean, there was one psychologist who was, uh, I don't know her story completely, but it was my understanding is she someone complained about her not being black and white with gender to APRA and she was put on mandatory supervision. Now, um, so that's, in other words... That's concerning, isn't it? Yeah, there's a blowback to people. And, and that's what happened in, in the UK. A lot of people who didn't take that automatic gender-affirming approach, and it's not just affirming as in, oh, let's wait and see. It's actively in, uh, affirmed, like you now call you by this name. So, so to me, there's more than just if it was gender-affirming, to me it would be, let's see where that goes for you. Let's I guess that you're coming to, you know, uh, see a psychologist, you'd expect, therefore... Uh, well, not to expect, but potentially they're there for that distress. And some clients, of course, the gender issue is not an issue. It's just that I happen to be, this is my gender. So it's almost an, an irrelevancy. But some clients would present with some dysphoria around their gender that they want to be the basis for discussion. That's right. And and my approach generally is to not, uh, not challenge on that, but look at social transition. Um, the old rule of having to be living, and back in the back in my day, it was you had to live in that role for a minimum of two years without one minute of, of doubt. So you can't say, well, I'm going to see my nan, therefore I'm going to go as a, as a girl because my nan won't be happy with it. So so that was that was the very strict criteria that. Um, you know, now it's 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 not it's not applied. So not everybody has to transition with hormones or with surgery. And then for me, the first step is let's see how you go living totally as that preferred gender. I'm interested in um, your thoughts around the apparent contradiction in the WPATH guidelines mm. um, and the affirmation policy. If they say they're trans and they're trans, and how do you manage? that apparent contradiction and thinking and advice, especially for clinicians writing reports in relation to potential um, uh, permanent body altering surgery? Well, WPART's interesting that their latest guidelines were out in 2012. So, so some of some colleagues working in the area sort of feel that they're out of touch. So I had a few quotes from WPART that I think I sent to you and I posted it on this Facebook page. Yes. And um there was this sort of reaction of, oh, no, no, what they're really talking about in psychotherapy is that you have to help them socially transition. That's not what I read. If I wanted to support my position of exploring where, where it's right for the client, then WPATH, uh, I think, supports that. I think the WPATH guidelines are still the ones used for uh, by doctors, yes. my understanding anyway, in uh, before they'll approve, say, top surgery or for the like. Um, so we are... Whether or not they're out of date, and they may well be, probably given the latest updates, 2012, we're still constrained by those guidelines. Is that not the case? Uh, we should be, but there are people getting there. I've I had an adult male uh, who got hormone therapy from his GP, uh, estrogen, just across the desk. Okay. No, uh, so he was on estrogen by the time I saw him. So there's also a gender clinic. I think it calls themselves a private gender clinic that, uh, in its blurb, um, will actually outline how you can get after after the age of 16 how this clinic can get you onto cross-sex hormones be, uh, because you know you only need to have 
the opinion of the GP and the opinion of one other specialist that can be an endocrinologist, if those two sign off on it, you can get it on PBS. You seem to be a voice of caution in this debate. You, you seem to be a voice of caution, but open caution and, and encouraging uh, open and respectful debate. Yes. Uh, why put your head over the parapet, though, Sandra? Because it seems like um, a dangerous thing to do. Well, I, just, I tell people I think I was born stroppy. Um, so thinking <laughs> about even, you know, being a female in a very sexist world as it was back then, um, I can remember, you know, getting angry with boys at school for the way they treated me and, you know, standing up for myself. So, so I think um, being a, a female in a very conservative world was good training. Uh, I keep repeating this story because it's still all these years later I haven't let go of it. In the, <laughs> in the 1970s, my husband had to sign his permission for me to get a passport when we went overseas. Wow. A lot of that has changed now. But I think I've always, uh, I, I enjoy the exploration of ideas and, and so with, with the gender issue, it to me is a, it, it's that same attraction and I get frustrated with people who, who stay on their, this one approach and aren't curious about how things might be different. Do, do, there is this seemingly, dare I say, politically correct view of things that some organisations um, have uh, adopted and I know that in your letter to the editor and insight, you basically asked the APS to write clinicians some guidelines in this area what would those guidelines ideally contain um i think it would adapt the the language from uh gender affirming to client affirming in other words that um, it is appropriate to explore uh, where the client's at without automatically as assuming that it's gender dysphoria yeah. um may i just ask uh about what your thoughts are around the common psychological issues affecting sex and gender diverse clients Oh, are there are there common problems? I'm not sure. I'm open. Look, to me, I think you you know there's, there's a whole grab bag. I think all of them have got merit. There's no one factor that I've read about that accounts for every client. There's no one factor that's necessary and sufficient to lead to somebody uh, coming to that view that they're trapped in the one body. So I I think we need to explore all, all of them. You know, the fleeing from female idea, you know, that I'd prefer to be male. We know that there's a higher percentage, for example, of people on the autism spectrum that present as, as transgender. Mm. So we need to be very, very widely read mm. um, because we don't have those answers yet. I, I, my, my experience is primarily social isolation. That's mainly what I see. I really like that idea of being widely read, thinking broadly, keeping on talking, these things uh, seem very important. All right, one, one almost last question. Um, you mentioned a few times, and I've seen it in your writings, the, the word safe. Yes. Safe diagnosis. Can you help me understand that better? Well, whenever we see a client, our concern should be their, their emotional safety. Uh, as a doctor sees someone with a physical disorder, it's how do I treat this this patient with the right treatment that's safe for them. So, so it's, I've assumed that that was a broad concept that everybody thought the same way, that um, if you've got a young person who's distressed, who's querying their gender, I don't think it's safe to, con to go one way or the other. It's the, the safety comes in following that person and, and gently get them to a point where at the moment this feels like it's the right, right place for me. But I feel safe enough to change without... You know, it reminds me of one of the, of the ethics, our ethics principles, one of them is talking about respect for peoples. And the first respect is for the client, um, not for the ideology. That's it. That's it. It's for the client.
Yes, and so that's what you're talking. It seems that's what you're talking about, making it safe, as providing a safe environment, a safe diagnosis for that particular client. Exactly, and safe enough for them when they leave you to have the confidence to to, to change if they want to. You know, if you go onto YouTube and look up detransition, there's some horrendous stories um, about people who have had hysterectomy or breast uh, breast removed. The the trans activists claim that there's a very low percentage of people who who desist or um, who detransition. So desisting is stopping treatment. Uh, detransitioning means that you've got to go um, off the drugs and so on. So desisting is I no longer think on that way. But detransitioning means you're changing the treatment that you're using. Now, I don't think we've got a, we've had enough time to pass to see what happens with this current cohort that, that's been this huge increase in, in natal females. So I suspect that this co- cohort that we're still dealing with, the detransition rate is going to be enormously higher. Now, again, that's a personal view. Um, but even in the old days, I saw one uh, man who had started the transition to female. He was booked in for surgery. And bear in mind, this was in those very tough days. He came to me because he was impotent. He'd just met a woman. Uh, he'd met a woman and, and decided that he was man after all and wanted help to resume sex. So even back then, the guidelines didn't save people from making the wrong choices. Um, but I think we have to help them be confident enough to be who they need to be for them. Whatever that might, whatever that may be, and, and, and change being, mind if being, they want to. Yes, and that notion of not reducing ourselves to gender to, to to one particular gender, but actually really embracing a gender diverse yes uh, continuum, you know, in society yep. seems it seems like a good idea. Um, um, but again, I am still learning. Well, the, the paradox for me is that, um, you know, I, I don't wear dresses, I don't wear makeup, uh, I don't like wearing high heels. Like, I, I basically don't adopt feminine characteristics like that. So I think that some of the cues that people are looking at um, can be misleading. You know, oh, I've always, I've always been a, a tomboy. Well, so was I, you know. But you know, so, so I think, yes, helping people to integrate their, their own experience with what's their best bet for the future. All right, fantastic. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. It's been a gallop through. Um, uh, there is so we could go on and speak for a long, long time. I have lots more questions, um, but uh, there is opportunity for further um, discussion. I hope you're keen to meet again. Look, I told you once I get started, I get on a roll. So. <laughs> it's okay. It's been an absolute pleasure to. Um, to meet you and um, to chat with you and I look forward to meeting again. That's great. Thanks. Have a great day. See you soon. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. You may like to get involved in any resulting discussion on the Clinically Thinking Facebook page or on the APS Clinical Psychologists Forum. I'll also place links to the references that Dr. Pertot has shared on the forum and on the Facebook page. Thanks for being with us today. I'm Lisa Chantler and this is Clinically Thinking.